You are listening to the Edu Salon podcast, a space for connection and conversation around education. Each episode, Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky talks with a global education thought leader to provide insights into where education is now and where it might move next. Hello, and welcome to the Edu Salon podcast, recorded on the lands of the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation, to whose elders, past, present, and emerging, I pay my respects. My name is Deborah Netalitsky, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Christian Van Neuerberg. Christian and I first met when we presented at the International Symposium for Coaching and Positive Psychology in Education in Sydney in 2016, and then at the National Coaching and Education Conferences in Melbourne in 2017 and Sydney in 2019 when we were joined by Rachel Lofthouse and Jim Knight. Christian is Professor of Coaching and Positive Psychology at the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. He's also Global Director of Growth Coaching International. He's an authority in the use of coaching in educational settings and is passionate about the creation of ideal environments for learning. He's author of the best-selling book, An Introduction to Coaching Skills, A Practical Guide, and has published numerous books about coaching. His latest book, From Surviving to Thriving, A Student's Guide to Feeling and Doing Well at University, co-authored with Paige Williams, will be published in March this year. He's joining me today from the Canary Islands of Spain. Welcome, Christian. Well, thank you. What a lovely introduction. It was a lovely kind of survey of, of uh, when we met, how we met, and uh, what we've both been interested in, you know, and uh, it's lovely to reflect that uh, even in these challenging times, uh, you're able to find a way to continue to engage people and talk to people about the thing that we're both passionate about. Thank you. Well, I'm really excited about talking with you because I think that what you're interested in and what you're an expert in has got so much to offer what we're going through at the moment um, as humans and as educators. And I thought I'd start with coaching that we're both interested in, that we both explore differently in our writing and our practice. Because coaching is a term that is pretty slippery. Different people have different ideas about it. Everyone's got an idea in their head about what coaching is. But I think if you get a room of people and and you say coaching, potentially those ideas are all quite different. So my first question is really when we talk about coaching or when you talk about coaching, what do you mean? What's your definition? Yeah, what a a great question, uh, Deb. Thank you for that. You know, I've I've struggled with the slipperiness of the term coaching in education specifically for over a decade now, and I do keep shifting positions on it. At times, I think we have to be really clear what we mean about this, <laughs> and that's probably the researcher side that we both have, you know, saying, if we're going to research something, we have to be crystal clear what is the intervention. So I sometimes I'm drawn towards that view, but at other times I'm thinking, look, whatever you call it, if what's happening in your educational setting is professionals having supportive, empowering conversations with one another, that's really all that matters. And there can be variation depending on context, on situation. So what do I, how do I kind of bring it together at the moment? For me, I like to think of coaching as creating ideal environments in which learning, growth, and development can take place. So that's the definition that I use at the moment, kind of loosely to hold. And if people tell me about different interventions they're doing, if it's an intervention that's about creating ideal environments for educators to learn, I think, yeah, that's probably a coaching approach. 
As you're talking, I'm thinking about some of the work that you've done and that Growth Coaching International has done because, as you know, I'm trained in cognitive coaching and also growth mm-hmm. coaching. And I think what resonated with me a bit with growth coaching was that it was okay with some slipperiness. Yeah. <laughs> um, and when I've when I've um, been at schools where we've put leaders and, and educators through the growth coaching model, I think they like things like the coaching approach and a coaching way of being that it's not just you know, a gold standard formulaic, a coaching conversation has to look like this, that there is a, almost a stance and a way of interacting and thinking about a conversation and being in the moment with someone and your intentionality that isn't necessarily a, a paint-by-numbers guide to how to do it. So there's something actually I think in the work that one of those organisations that you're part of does that embraces that idea of it's okay if our intention is right. Yeah, that's an excellent way of putting it. So at Growth Coaching International, um, you know, when we talk about coaching and education, I think we give a bit more weight to the education part of it. So we're not purists in saying coaching must be done in this way every time in every situation. Uh, I think we're drawn a little bit more towards making sure that it's having the outcome that we want, which is ultimately better outcomes for our learners. And the way I kind of think that through is if we can have better conversations with one another in educational settings, that will lead to better relationships. And I'm pretty convinced of that. I've been a coach for many years. My feeling is that the quality of the conversation we have with others is really important, an important way of building uh, trusting meaningful relationships. And once you have those better conversations, to use a phrase from Jim Knight, once you have those better conversations, you can have better relationships. And I think better relationships lead to better well-being and performance outcomes. So at the beginning, Deb, when you were saying, you know, in this current climate, coaching does rise to the fore a little bit. That's, that's where I think you're right because coaching is a way of supporting people to grow and develop that's also good for the well-being, I would say, of everybody involved in the, in the enterprise. And if I may add one more thing, the quote that got me into coaching, because I've always been passionate more about the education side than the coaching side. And for me, coaching emerged as uh, what I thought was an excellent intervention to get the outcomes we wanted in education. And that quote was from Sir John Whitmore. And the first part of it is unlocking people's potential to maximize their own performance. And I thought, well, that's what we're doing in education. That's what we're all about. And then the second sentence, which gave me pause for thought, which, uh, in which he says, it is helping them to learn rather than teaching them, almost putting coaching as opposite, if you like, to um, direct instruction. I'm just reflecting when when I got hooked into coaching, and it was probably two things. Um, I do remember the Whitmore stuff, but it was uh, Costa and Garmston talk about it as taking someone from where they are to where they want to be. And I think in education, when you're thinking about, and I was in a position where I was being asked to bring in a coaching intervention in order to improve teachers' teaching. So it was an improvement agenda, but that idea that it was driven by the individual for their purpose and their aims, not 
those aims and purpose put upon them by someone else. And there were also some studies by Boyatzis and Jack which talked about what is helpful because I think when we're educators we think a lot about we want to be helpful and sometimes Mm -hmm. we think giving great advice and providing solutions is like the best way to be helpful and I think looking at that research which showed that actually coaching can be the thing that is the most helpful and makes people think the most and come up with their own answers to their problems I think that was what made me think oh maybe there's other ways to to do education well but I've also heard you you you're talking about performance and well-being and I've I've heard you talk about well-being as a side effect Mm. of coaching and so can you talk a little bit about that tension between because I think often when people come to coaching it's because they want a lever for improvement in performance but now people might be coming to it because they want something to enhance relationships, well-being, the organisation. So how do those things sit together for you, do you think, the optimal performance and optimal well-being pieces? Yeah, what, uh, uh, how timely it is for us to be talking about this. You know, with uh, Professor Andy Hobson, uh, who's the editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Mentoring and Coaching and Education, we've just published an article earlier this month And in that article, we argue that um, we must do better to make sure that coaching interventions in education never add to stress or anxiety. And so I think there's almost an ethical requirement for us to make sure that when we use coaching in education, it's not to the detriment of people's well-being. And the only reason I'm raising this now is I've just become concerned with that over the last two, three years, you know, this relentless focus on improvement. I think we must be careful that coaching isn't seen as only about improvement. So I'm very much on board with with what you're suggesting. I think, you know, prior to uh, the pandemic we're experiencing now, I I, I was getting the sense that, um, you know, coaching, the amazing thing about coaching was that there were a myriad of so-called side effects. So in addition to the narrow question of does coaching support people to implement desired changes, which is often where the research focus goes. The research focus is wanting to be interested in does coaching work, i.e. if you coach an educator about a certain you know, uh, uh, instructional technique or a, a way of managing in the classroom or a way of talking to others, do, does it work? And, and so, yes, I think it works. But the things that I think both of us are more excited about is what else is going on? Well, while we're helping an educator or an educational leader to achieve something that they've set for themselves, Alongside that, we're seeing increases in self-confidence, a boost to self-esteem, a feeling of connectedness, a feeling of mattering, a feeling of being valued and appreciated. And for me, that's where the magic of coaching lies. And, and, and yet we have to manage this thing that most educators, no, maybe that's not fair, but many educators who come to coaching are coming because there's a a perceived need for improvement or change. So how do we convey the the notion that it's not one or the other, that, um, you know, done correctly, and you might ask me what I mean by that, (laughs) but done correctly, 
I think the benefits of coaching are that it, it allows for both. It allows a, a person to achieve personally meaningful goals through a repeated uh, conversational interactions. And in the process, it allows that person to grow both personally and professionally. So it's really about growth. And I think the, the being valued piece speaks to me because I think the thing about coaching is as the coach, the hard work goes into the listening to the person in front of you. And it's quite a luxury in today's world to be listened to intently and to be given the space in a conversation, not where someone's waiting for their turn to speak, but actually they're intently listening to you and then posing questions or paraphrases that are helping to move your thinking forward. That is such a luxury of a space to be able to have that time. Yeah, you know, as I listen to you, I kind of take a breath and think, yeah, what a luxury it is in our busy world. Such a busy place at the moment. I'm going to tell you a seemingly irrelevant anecdote, if that's okay, which is, you know, I love dogs. Uh, I don't have a dog because I travel a lot, but I do love dogs. And uh, for those listening who love cats, I also like cats. Cats are my second favorite. <laughs> but sometimes I'm out for walks, and that's something I've been doing, particularly during the, the pandemic, for my own well-being, because I like to be outdoors. I like to just be with nature sometimes and away from technology, actually. Um, so I'm walking along, and in my mind, I'm thinking how wonderful it is to be out here experiencing things, being here. And then I see people uh, walking their dogs. And while they're walking their dogs, they're looking at their iPhone or whatever the phone is that they've got or some kind of uh, electronic thing. And I, I look at the dog, and the dogs, you know, sometimes look up at their owners and, and all they're looking for is that moment of eye contact to say, hey, you know, uh, look, this is fun or I want to go over there. And there isn't even that connection. And, and um, you know, what you said is absolutely right. Every educator, every educational leader wants to feel that connection. They want, you know, education is such meaningful work. We deserve for it to be recognized. We deserve moments where we can kind of sit back and say, you know, I'm actually doing a very important thing here, particularly during this pandemic. It's not talked about enough, but educators have been frontline during this whole pandemic. And that's whether uh, the particular educational institution you work in has gone, you know, virtual for some of the time or not. Educators have worked right through this pandemic. So we do need those moments of recognition and they can come from coaching conversations. And one final point that when you were talking about the impact that it can have on educators, I would argue simply offering coaching to educators. So if you're an educational leader listening to this, my contention is that simply saying to your team, coaching is available. You're already going to see some benefits because the message that hopefully uh, people will hear is, we, we want to support you, we value you, and we care about you, and we want, you to, we want to support you to become a better educator or leader in the way that you see is most appropriate and timely. So I'm going to piggyback on that with another idea that you've challenged me with over time because I think when we met, I was in the middle of bringing in this coaching intervention at a school that I was working at, and we'd done a couple of pilot years, and then we were doing the year where we rolled it out to everybody. And we gave the gift of coaching to all teachers. 
everyone was now required to to have this wonderful gift of of these wonderful conversations that we've been talking about and, and the growth and development and value and well-being and an improvement that would come with that. And some people said, no, thank you. Uh, you can keep yeah. your coaching. Uh, and and some people did the coaching and then were like, oh, wow, this is actually really valuable and on we went. But you've talked about this idea of what I think you call democratic voluntary involvement where you were saying to me at the time and possibly still coaching should be an opt-in. And you'll be pleased to know yeah. that at my current school I've brought it in as, a, as an invitation rather than a requirement. <laughs> so it's available for people and they are it's offered to them uh, in a couple of different ways. So can you talk to me a bit more about what your ideas are around to what extent we should coaching should be given to people against their will or is it always something that should be invitational? Well, Deb, first of all, if I might just appreciate you, <laughs> you're, you've done so much for our field as well, Deb, and uh, I really appreciate you've done the research, you've written so much about this, and you've, you've shared your learning. And that's such a wonderful example of you developing your own practice and theories based on real life practice. And that's something I would put forward to everyone is, you know, let's make sure that whatever we talk about is really rooted in practice, because what we're both passionate about, and hopefully the listeners here are actually making a difference. And so we must make sure our practices are, are rooted in classrooms, in schools, in universities. So thank you for what you're doing uh, in, in that space. And, and I'm glad that in that former institution, people were so polite when they said, oh, you can, you can keep it. <laughs> because, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah, the no thank you. So it's such an interesting question. And, and I've started to formulate an answer. It's still a little bit vague because obviously when I say what I'm going to say, people will will ask the question about what about those who have said no thank you so i'll, I'll get on to that but um yeah this idea of democratic voluntary involvement my view has been that if we're going to roll out coaching and this is where it gets difficult because i have no doubt in my mind that one-to-one -one coaching it has benefits uh, i i think both the coach and the coachee benefit from those interactions I can see that those interactions have a ripple effect across the school. But the big questions, things like that Michael Fullan or, or Andy Hargreaves might be dealing with is, how do you roll this out? How do you get this? So this is the question you've posed. And so my view has always been that if we roll out interventions like coaching, which for me are highly respectful ways of, of interacting with others, it's for me, it's Coaching is one of the most respectful ways of supporting the professional growth of others. Then we have to, you know, roll it out in a way that adheres to the, the fundamental principles of coaching. And Jim Knight, in his partnership principles, choice is one of the partnership principles. And I, I would argue it's probably one of the most important of the partnership principles. So it just felt to me a little bit counterintuitive to say, look, this is a very respectful intervention. We're trying to do this so that we create a, a culture of, you know, um, us supporting one another, but you have to do it. And in education, particularly the people we're talking to in this instance are professionals. And as Jim would say, professionals who think for a living and to do the thinking for them to say, we know what's best for you. It kind of, 
ties into that example you gave when you were saying we sometimes fall into the trap of saying the best way of helping people is giving them advice or telling them what to do. And this is the same thing. So, yeah, I, I this idea of democratic voluntary involvement is one democratic, everybody should have an opportunity to, to join if they'd like. So the flip side of this, Deborah, is what about institutions which say only this group of people get it? So that's another flip side of this. So I think everybody should have the opportunity by choice. It should be voluntary in the sense that you're not forced into it. Um, I, I've rode myself back a little bit from that. I don't mind an institution saying everybody should be open to learning what it is. So I, I, I don't think you can say, I don't want to know anything about it because educators are professionals and we need to be open to new learning. But I think it is okay to say, I don't want to coach and I don't want to be coached at the moment. I think that's perfectly. And then the involvement is another interesting one. I'd like it to be so invitational that if anyone in the educational setting gets excited about it, they can be involved in some way rather than saying, no, 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 this is educators or you have to be an educational leader or you have to be a, a member of the administrative team. I think anyone in the school can say, I'm excited. How can I get involved? And there should be some way to get involved. And, and for me, that way of rolling it out is actually promoting what coaching is all about. So let me get on to the, what about those that said, no, thank you. I think our best bet of getting to the people who have said no, thank you. And I respect those people who have said no, thank you, because I would say they're right. For them, uh, there's other priorities. They're saying these things are more important for me at the moment. So I think the best way to convince people who are saying that's not so important for me right now is for them to start seeing the benefits that can it can have within an educational community. And then maybe at a later point, getting on board with it. And final point, in many contexts that I've worked, sometimes those who have been a little bit reluctant at the outset can become the biggest champions of coaching. And the way I see those people who are saying, no, thank you, is they're wanting to really make sure that this is going to make the, the positive impact that we all want. And so when they've been down this journey of initially maybe being a little bit cautious to embracing it, they're really good at convincing others because they've been through the journey themselves. So much in there. So the essence of that democratic voluntary involvement is really about it being the rolling out of offering coaching in a school, reflecting the values and the principles yes. of coaching, of allowing and facilitating the self-efficacy of the individual, their knowledge about themselves as an adult learner, their priorities, being inclusive, being respectful. And then you were talking about the no thank you people. And I think one <laughs> thing that I have learned since, I mean, I was a, a leader in a school from my third year of teaching. So I was a very young leader at one point. And I think the thing that I learned along the way was that I, I had a leader say to me once, you know, don't water the rocks, just water the plants. And I think the idea was, you know, use the early adopters, 
work with your enthusiasts. If there are people who are resisting, they'll come along later. And I think what I really learned sometime in the middle of my kind of, I don't know, I'm still in the middle, I think, but at the early middle of my leadership career, at some point, I realised that the people who were saying, no, thank you, or we think this is a terrible idea, the who you might call the dissenters, are actually some of the most important people because they have reasons for that and they need to be listened to and understanding where they're coming from and making something meaningful for them is actually um, something really useful that we can do. Just to follow up, if I may, yeah. just on what you said, the way you described the interaction with uh, who you called the dissenters, that sounds really respectful to me. You know that, And that's what we have to demonstrate. And so imagine you're kind of resisting it and then somebody's forcing you to do it. Well, first of all, they're going to say, well, this isn't as a respectful an intervention as you're saying. Secondly, it's going to make them resist even more. And thirdly, if you've trained that person to be a coach, I wouldn't want to be coached by them. <laughs> you know, if they're doing it against their will or they're, and, you know, uh, I've coached many people in my career, many of them educators. And it's exactly what you say. If in the first conversation, they're even resistant to the idea of being coached, my first focus would be, well, um, let's build the relationship. Let me understand. Because my view is when people are resisting something, they're fighting to protect something. And I want to know what are we protecting? Because that might be worth protecting. And it might be a case of them being reassured that they can protect that thing whilst also doing this. Or we might need to change direction. So coaching is all about listening to people and valuing their input. So I love the way you described that. I think the other thing I learned when I was talking to those people who were saying they, they weren't interested in being coached, even though it was being offered or to or required of them, was the different needs of educators at different you know stages and ages of their careers. And I, you, you're, you also do a lot of work in mentoring. And I think as I spoke to those people, it was often, it wasn't always, it was other people who had different aspirations, but sometimes early career teachers had a need for, you know, much more directed or instructional professional learning or mentoring. Mm -hmm. Often people who were sort of veteran teachers had more to offer in terms of themselves working with younger staff or what was their legacy going to be or what what changes in practice were relevant to them. Uh, so what did their growth look like differently? So I think my thinking became much more about differentiating the kinds of development opportunities that we can offer. Uh, and so, you, you know, what's the role of mentoring, do you think, in all of this sort of wow. coaching, mentoring, development, conversations in an organisation, the culture of a school, where does that sit? So Rachel Lofthouse obviously is the expert in this. And what I like about the way Rachel sees this is that it, what we're talking about is professional learning conversations. And, and you're absolutely right. For different people at different stages of, the, of their careers, but not, not uniquely, you know, at different times, we need different types of interventions. So if, if I had a blank sheet of paper and there were an educational institution that was, was saying, look, we're really interested in supporting the professional growth of our educators, particularly in a way that's respectful, good for their well-being, and is going to be energizing and will have uh, an impact on the educational outcomes we're pursuing. For me, I would be suggesting offer more than coaching. And this might sound strange because I've been a huge champion of coaching. But I've never said coaching is the only solution. And there's times when 
coaching is absolutely not the right thing to be doing. So uh, I think the most helpful thing to do in an educational setting, I think we can insist that professional learning and growth is an expectation of your role. If you're an educator, you know, saying I don't want to grow and learn and develop, I think uh, that doesn't fit with the ethos of an educational institution because we're all learners. Uh, but I do think it's perfectly appropriate to say, but the way I want to learn is this, and what I need to learn is this, because we are professionals. And uh, so I think even offering and saying, look, professional growth is non-negotiable where we are. However, these are the, the different ways, coaching, mentoring, observing, uh, instruction, I think it's nice to offer a range. And I worked with an institution where this was very successful. I'm kind of remembering back. It was an institution in the Middle East. And we offered at the same time coaching and mentoring. And, you know, what that really allowed was for us to distinguish, to say, look, depending on what you need, there's these two different interventions. And it led to great success because the person requiring this growth actually had to make a choice to say, do I want to think this through by myself? Do I consider that I have the knowledge that I need in order to grow and develop the way that I'm headed? Or am I lacking some information, some tools and techniques? And that led to a kind of a choice point even before they got to the room or wherever it was that was happening. And final personal reflection is, as you mentioned at the start, I've actually recently moved to the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. This is a, you know, a leading global university, uh, but in the area of health and medicine. And you know, most of my career to now has been in, uh, well, my main interest has been in education. So, you know, I could say, well, I'd, I'd, I also want some coaching, but I definitely need mentoring. I, I would like a mentor in this institution who's been doing research and teaching within a particular context, because most of the students are people studying to become health and you know, affiliated professionals. I, what I really want is some mentoring. So uh, I don't think it's about uh, where we are in our career necessarily. So I can see early career teachers. If it's about how do things work in this new institution, then I think mentoring is helpful. But if they're saying, I really want to shape uh, my identity as an educator to, you know, I've got this vision of the kind of educator I want to be, then mentoring might get in the way because the mentor brings, and that's why we want mentors. Mentors bring a particular experience, set of experiences. And for mentoring to be effective, that set of experiences has to be valued by the mentee. And so another little related point is, I think when you're offering mentoring, there has to be an element of choice because you can't say, we're just going to assign you a mentor. Well, right now in the situation I'm in, if I'm looking for mentoring about how to teach coaching to medical professionals, I would like a mentor who has taught coaching to medical professionals. So you need their expertise. Yeah, that's right. So, and, and again, remember the element of choice to say, hey, you got a mentor, no choice. This is the person. You're not setting that mentoring relationship up to its you know, maximum 
potential, I think. So thank you for that question. So if we're talking, the relationship in any a mentoring or a coaching relationship is absolutely key. And so I think one of the sticking points sometimes when schools or universities or education institutions are bringing in coaching is who does the coaching? Yeah. Because if there's a leader, like a line manager coaching their staff member that they line manage, there's potentially uh, a hierarchical position there that might get in the way of someone feeling like they can trust that relationship to be open. Or I know when I've been coached by uh, someone who's in leadership above me, I've gone into the meeting thinking to myself, what's okay to talk about in this room and in this conversation? And there's some things I have to set to the side. Or it could be colleagues or it could be an external person. So how, how do you set up a coaching model in which the right people are coaching the right people? Yeah, uh, the the honest answer to that is I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. But I have a few insights that, that might be... And, and the reason I say I don't know is I think it's highly contextual. But there's advantages and disadvantages that are worth considering. And that example you gave of the person who's being coached, it's reasonable that they would have those doubts to say, can I really say this to the person who's may fire me or, you know, is also responsible for evaluating my performance. And a line manager coaching someone else formally, I think that brings additional complexities that maybe it's better to avoid. It doesn't mean that the line manager cannot adopt, going back to what we were saying about a coaching approach, I think a line manager can definitely adopt a coaching approach. But when it comes to formal coaching, I think the line manager role can add complexity that, that's probably not needed because there's already a lot of complexity when we talk about coaching. So what? So there's some disadvantages to that, but I think advantages to leaders adopting a coaching approach. Now, where I see great potential in, in education is the idea of peer coaching or, or uh, to put it another way, educators coaching one another where there is no concern about the hierarchies. And in fact, how amazing is it that we build really strong, co-supportive relationships amongst our educators? And there, I think I'm I'm more likely to say to my peer, you know what, I'm really struggling with some of the things that are going on, or I'm six months behind on a project. And there's benefits for both parties in that example, because often when we're an educator and we're kind of stuck with something we often get caught in the sense, it's only me. Everybody else seems to be doing great. I'm the only one struggling with this. Or I'm the only one uh, not sure how to manage my work life. I think people hearing from one another that they're experiencing challenges, it can have that normalizing effect, which is so important. And, and the idea of, look, it's okay to uh, sometimes struggle. It's okay to sometimes be late. It's okay to look after yourself. And um, those messages right now are very important for me. I've become a little bit distracted by it's okay to look after yourself. But let me come back to the point, uh, how can we set this up? I think uh, the democratic voluntary involvement is a good thing to be thinking about uh, when we're rolling it out. Are we adhering to this? The other big question is, um, uh, are we offering this support to everyone? You know, because... Equity is very important. We're talking about it a lot globally, and I'm glad we are. Um, social justice is something that's very important to me as well. Um, so I think to be safe, 
make sure we're not identifying certain groups of people who are deserving of coaching or mentoring and others who may not be, because there's been a judgment there somewhere and that judgment could be colored by unconscious bias or all sorts of things. So I would say as a rule of thumb, if you're thinking of rolling out coaching and mentoring, just think about how are we going to make sure as many people as possible are able to access this. Um, and apart from that, uh, trust the educational leaders and the educators um, to know what's going to work best in their, in their context. And you know the no thank you. I think educational institutions have a right to do the no thank you as well. Educational institutions can say, not right now, and we should respect that. Yes, there's, there's often things that are a very good idea, but it's not the right time in that particular place for some reason. Absolutely. Yeah. So we're coming towards the end of the time that we have, Christian, and so I'm going to move yeah. to what the quick fire questions at the end that I call oh. the, the enlightening round. <laughs> uh, so first of all, uh, what's something unexpected that uh, many people might not know about you? See, I, I've uh, I've really enjoyed talking about my oh, this is quick fire isn't it? Quick fire. Um, they might not know. <laughs> I wasn't sure if you would be able to do quick fire, but we'll see how we go. <laughs> well, I think a recent thing is I've moved. Uh, no, I haven't moved. I've bought a property in the Canary Islands. Uh, and what people don't know about me maybe is I just love being outdoors, and uh, this is a place that encourages me to be outdoors. And. They might know it if they're following you, you're, you're on Instagram, but you're also a very keen motorcyclist. Yes. And I th <laughs> I've, uh, one of my first purchases here on the island is going to be a, a motorcycle. Fantastic. And what's something that's currently on your desk? I don't have a desk. Um, what a way to live. There's no <laughs> desk. There's nothing on it. Um, I don't have a desk because I work for Growth Coaching International, as you know, and that's headquartered in Sydney. I work for Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. My headquarters there is in Dublin. So the, the desk is wherever I, I am. And uh, I've just started using my iPad and laptop combination much more. So that's my desk, as it were. Um, but um, I don't like to have a desk because I found the desk was just collecting paper and, and stuff that I would two years later throw out. <laughs> okay. what is Who is someone that inspires you in your work? Well, I've mentioned a few of them already. Michael Fullan, Andy Hargreaves, Rachel Lofthouse, John Campbell, Jim Knight, yourself, Deb. I, I'm really inspired by people who are driven to make things better. That really inspires me. And all of the people I've mentioned, including yourself, go above and beyond what's necessary, you know, and that's inspiring. Other people in my, one person I want to mention in my past is Professor George Jairalla. He taught me, I'm not good at quick fire, as you can see. Uh, he taught me Shakespeare. I walked into the classroom, American University of Beirut, I'm undergraduate student, probably more interested in, uh, you know, the social aspect of, of university. Walk into the classroom. There's George Gerola, professor. Uh, he's standing on one foot, dressed all in black. He's got a white beard, slightly balding. 
and he's got uh, some, it's like a necklace. In, in Arabic, it's called a masbaha. It's uh, like little beads that, that provoke thinking. So he's got this little necklace on top of his head, standing on one foot, and he delivered the whole lecture standing on one foot. And um, we're all thinking, what's going on? What's going on? And uh, he was talking about it to get us excited about Shakespeare, and he, he was talking about how in Hamlet, Hamlet is a revenge tragedy where the revenge never takes place. And he got me hooked on Shakespeare. I did a, My PhD was on Shakespeare because of George Gairalla. And there's another example of an educator going above and beyond. He wasn't young. He was towards the end of his career, standing on one foot. Why? And, and that's, that's what inspires me. And what a great example of an educator, the way that those moments with our teachers or our educators stick with us, like those little details that you remember of that moment that, that hooked you in. How fantastic. Yeah. And that was a moment where the educator went above and beyond. It, was, it wasn't, oh, it's Shakespeare, here you go, these are the plays. Something inspiring. And you're right, it stayed with me for my whole life. It's actually transformed my life because because of that, I did a master's in Shakespeare at that university. I, that's the reason I went to the UK to do my PhD. Imagine. And, and, and uh, you know, my, my dream or wish is that every student can have uh, an educator like that. What's one thing that you've got coming up that you're excited about? I've got a conversation with Jim Knight coming up. That's kind of uh, top of my mind. At uh, Growth Coaching International, we've got our first truly global conference coming up in March, and uh, it's completely online. We're going to have people from all over the world. I'm running with my good colleague, Claudia Awad, the coaching accreditation program online completely at GCI. And we have people from, I think, five continents on it. So, yeah, I should also say non-work related things, right? But I actually love what I do. Well, for me, this podcast has come out of that desire and hunger for connection and I think that you know these kind of online or verbal or you know face-to-face but on a screen conversations can actually nourish us professionally and give us something during this time. Absolutely and that's why I said at the beginning I'm so grateful for you doing this because I haven't seen you in years (laughs) and I used to (laughs) love those hey oh there's Deb let's have a chat and there would always be inspiring and nourishing conversations and you've recreated it here because I've really enjoyed this opportunity. I'm more enthused. It's given me a little bit of renewed energy about this idea of look, doing a little bit extra, doing that one thing that maybe is going to inspire someone else. And so my last question to you is, as we are coming to the end of this conversation, if you were to distill your current thinking about education to its essence, what is one thought or resource that you would leave listeners with? I want to kind of circle back to this idea of creating ideal environments for learning. I think that's what, what I distill it to. And the, 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 the thing to add to that is, I think as educators, how do we need to be? That's, that's what I distill it to. How do we need to be to create environments around us that inspire people to want to learn, grow, develop? So when you're thinking about the learning environment, it's less about systems, procedures, structures, and more about all of the humans thinking, how do I need to be for this place and this organization and the, and the learning of the people here 
to be how we would like it to be? Uh, I think those structures and systems should facilitate what we just talked about. So I don't think they're irrelevant. I think they're very important. And, you know, when we think about coaching and as, as an example, the structure in a coaching conversation is critically important, but it's not the main thing. The structure is there to create the environment. So, yes, I think if we can just have structures and systems that allow educators to uh, be treated like professionals, that allow them to be motivated and engaged, because most of the educators I know have gotten into this because they want to really make a difference. So I'd, I'd say if the structures and systems allow for that to happen, they're working. But I think if the systems and structures become the main focus and, and, and somehow those systems and structures inhibit the ability of individual educators to be George Khairallah, so I just love the idea of treating educators as professionals who are creative. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today, Christian. I've really enjoyed it. Me too. Thank you so much for creating this opportunity. You've created a structure where this becomes possible. So thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Edu Salon podcast. You can join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your network by giving this podcast a rating or review and by connecting with Deb and her guests on social media.